So uh, listen, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 this semester. And, and while Jesus talks about marriage in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32, he says the same thing and then expounds on it a lot more in Matthew 19. So if you've got a Bible, turn to the right or digitally scroll up or something. Uh, we're going to go over to Matthew chapter 19. That's what Kirsten read earlier. And we're going to spend our time there this evening where Jesus expounds a bit more on what he says in Matthew 5. And to set this up, um, I just want you to, to, to know that if you, if you haven't been um, raised in traditions that, that, that pay attention to context, this may be kind of new to you or sound strange, but everything Jesus says, he says uh, to people in a context. And so, for example, I'll t- I'll, well, let me actually tease that out just a minute. Let me tell you a little bit about this one and then give you a counterexample in a second. Okay, so to set this up, in the first century, there was a big debate um, in Jewish circles about marriage and divorce. And if you go all the way to the left in your Bible, just a few books in, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses basically permits a divorce. Moses is this, a prophet uh, of Israel um, who led God's people out of slavery and into freedom. Uh, And Moses basically permits a divorce if a spouse does something indecent. That's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one through four. And this is a really ambiguous phrase. Like if your spouse does something indecent, And no one, honestly, no one's really sure what this means, um, hence the debate. And so in the first century, you have Rabbi Shammai who thinks that it's specifically about something related to sexual immorality. This indecency might be something related to sexual immorality, like adultery. And Rabbi Hillel who thinks that really anything which displeases you is an okay reason for divorce. So literally in one instance, we have some of his writings saved. In one instance, this rabbi suggests that like, for example, a man could divorce his wife if she burns his food. Okay, so they're looking at Deuteronomy 24 where Moses permits this divorce and they're, they're debating on what are okay reasons to get a divorce. Okay, so all this is going on and, um, and that's the context within Jesus is about to speak. And he has a different tone, a different posture, a different candor to this group of people who are debating an Old Testament text, what we would call the Old Testament in their, in their language, just a biblical text. They're debating a biblical text about what makes it okay for somebody to get divorced you'll notice that Jesus has very different like ways of speaking when he's talking to somebody who has been, for example, in John chapter four, probably through many different marriages and divorces and feels a degree of shame about that. You'll see his posture change. But in this dynamic, Jesus is talking to people who are debating about what are the okay reasons for people to get divorced. And so this is going on. And all these religious leaders in a sort of a first century version of cancel culture, are, they're trying to get Jesus to say something dumb so that he can, they can write him off. If we can get Jesus to say something dumb, that we do, then, then we can discredit him and we don't have to worry about his rabble rousings you know, so much anymore. And so they use a hot topic of the day to do this, marriage and divorce. What does Jesus think about this debate that we're having? Is it okay to divorce someone for any reason? or only if they did something really indecent, like commit adultery. That's the context of the passage that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 19. That's the setup, right? We're going to pick it up in verse 3, and I'm just going to walk you kind of through these verses we read earlier. Um, And so I'll read a couple, and then I'll say a few words, and we'll read a couple more, okay? So verse 3 of chapter 19 of the gospel according to Matthew. And the Pharisees, uh, uh, they came up to Jesus. The Pharisees, I don't think I'm going to say this, they're like religious leaders. They're like the do-gooders, the serious people, who are always concerned about whether we're doing things right or wrong, okay? The Pharisees came up to him, and they test him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning 
created them male and female. And he said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling or cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And, and before we read on, the first thing I want you to notice is that they are asking about divorce. Is it okay for us to have divorces for X reasons? And Jesus, in his wisdom, knows that before we can talk about divorce, we probably need to talk about marriage. What's happening in marriage? Before we ask, how, why do people get divorced, or is it okay for somebody to get divorced, what's the purpose of marriage? Why do people get married? What's God's intention behind marriage? What do these two people mean by marriage? Before I ask if we can break something, why has it been built? We need to answer these questions before we even know what to do with divorce, you see? Okay, so first, notice that. Jesus, they talk about divorce, Jesus talks about marriage. Second, Jesus does something else. He's pretty brilliant here. They ask about whether a man can divorce his wife, and, and Jesus responds to their uh, patriarchally loaded question by reminding them that God made male and female in his image. He immediately responds with the truth that male and female stand as equals before God and are together made in God's image. And I just don't want you to miss that. That's not the dominant thing that Jesus is teaching right now. But culturally, we know that women had very little power at this time. And you can follow a pretty dominant thread from the beginning of the Gospels until the end of the Gospels of Jesus affirming the dignity of women and lifting them up in honor in a culture which did not have categories for it. And this is one of those instances. It's like Jesus is teaching about this, but he just wants to throw in a couple of things on the way that he keeps uh, messing with them on and trying to reframe their grid and how they think about ethics in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now I'm going to say a little bit more about this later, but just before we move on, I want to make, I want you to notice something real quick. That in the kingdom of God, marriage supersedes the relationship between a child and a parent. How many marriages have fallen apart because a husband and a wife love their kids more than they love each other? Verse six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate or let no one separate. This is a really famous line that you'll hear in tons of wedding ceremonies. I, I say this every time I pronounce somebody married at the very end with, with the, by the power of God and in, in, in accordance with the laws of the state within which I'm marrying these people. I, I say you are our, our, our husband and wife and all you may kiss your bride, all that kind of stuff. But I say you, you are now, you are no longer two, but one. And what God has joined together, let no one separate. Every single wedding, that's, what's, that's what I say every single wedding. Um, and, and Jesus, notice right here at the end when he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now Jesus is talking about divorce. Separate, like no one separate them. And his basic summary of the question, uh, is, it, is, uh, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? His summary is, if God joins something together, you better not separate it. If God joins something together, you better not separate it. Jesus, is it okay for us to divorce someone for any reason? If God joins something together, you better not separate it. And the Pharisees do exactly what you and I would do and what you might even be doing right now in your own head or your own heart. Like they look for exceptions, right? They come up with extreme situations with hypothetical loopholes. What about abuse? What about abandonment? In their case, they go to the Old Testament teaching given by Moses. 
In Deuteronomy 24, I mentioned this, there's this lengthy hypothetical situation with a man giving a certificate of divorce to his wife, and the Pharisees are referencing that here, right? Jesus, if we shouldn't separate what God has joined, then why did Moses give us a a certificate? Why did Moses command us to give a certificate of divorce in some instances, right? When Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate, that that creates some resistance. And and we all might have different reasons for, for that resistance, but we have it. And the Pharisees lean forward with their resistance using the, using the Bible. They come forward and they go, well, listen, Jesus, you say let no one separate, but Moses commanded us to give a certificate of divorce in this instance. And listen how Jesus responds in verse 8. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So first of all, Moses didn't command this. He allowed it. And how many pointless and heartbreaking and unethical and, and just wounding debates and, and uh, things happen in our lives because we just twist one or two words of the Bible. You know, like there's like famous examples, like when somebody says like God helps those who help themselves, which like isn't a Bible verse. You know, there's tons of those things, right? Um you know, or, or like God will never give you more than you can handle. Like those things are, 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 are they, they do, they do, they like train wreck our faith in our lives. And here the Pharisees are like, Moses commanded us and Jesus corrects them. No, he didn't. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed. This isn't God's desire. God didn't command you to get divorced. He allowed it. What God has joined together, you shouldn't separate. But because of your hardness of heart, God allows it. God didn't command divorce. He allowed it. And what a strange, I don't have time to get too much into this, friends, but like what a strange and wonderful grace that our God would allow something that he doesn't desire. He didn't want Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't want me to be irritable with my kids. He doesn't want divorce. But he allows these things, and he's able to infinitely work good out of them. Sometimes, friends, Divorce is, in fact, the lesser of two evils. It is never good. And I want to be clear about that. Divorce is never good. In the same way that an amputation is never good. There are times when a limb might need to be amputated because things have gotten so bad. But we would all agree that it would be better if the limb could heal. But if it's so bad and we don't see any possibility for it to heal anymore... For the sake of the rest of the body, it needs to be removed. We would think that that's the lesser of two evils, right? Better to lose a hand than your whole body, right? Divorce can sometimes be the only viable option to salvage whatever humanity and hope is left in and between two people. I know this. But just like you wouldn't say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you got your arm amputated. We also are wrong to say, I'm so glad you got divorced. It may be necessary, but it's not good. And any good which is on the other side of divorce isn't because of the divorce. It's because, of, because our God is a God of second and third and a million chances. He's a God who is always at work to bring all things together for the good of those who love him. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, think adultery, and marries another commits adultery. 
All right, so look, Jesus is holding our feet to the fire on this. He's holding the Pharisees' feet to the fire on this. These people who are looking for loopholes, they're looking for reasons that they can get divorced. This isn't like a pastoral conversation where one person is at the end of their rope. These are intellectual debates, and it's like, hey, if we get married, what are our ways out? And when Jesus says God does allow it, he then holds their feet to the fire on it and says, but listen, unless you get divorced, Unless you get divorced because of uh, sexual immorality, if you remarry somebody else, if you marry somebody else, then that's committing adultery. This is hard. And right after Jesus talks about allowing divorce, he ups this ante and he qualifies any exceptions to not separating what God has joined together. Hopping around with different spouses is committing adultery, even if there's divorces in between. You are violating your covenant vows to another when you do that. You understand? I, 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 to my wife, I said, her name's Anna, and I said to Anna, until death do us part. And if I divorce her and marry somebody else, I have violated my covenant to her. If, however, Jesus says, your spouse has slept with somebody else, you're free to divorce and remarry. And most commentators think that the reason why that is is because if somebody sleeps with somebody else, they've already committed adultery and they've already violated the marriage and the marriage is already broken. Still, still, you're not commanded to get divorced even when adultery happens. You're not commanded to get divorced and remarried. You're simply allowed to. And this is a tremendous grace to people who have been violated and wounded on the other side of adultery that they, they should feel free out of the words of our Lord, to, 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 to leave and marry again. But more than one friend of mine has had a marriage which is healing and growing on the other side of adultery. You're not commanded to get divorced. You're allowed to. And if you think Jesus' teaching on this is really hard to hear, you're not alone. Because at this point, at this very point, Jesus' friends break in and they say, Jesus, listen to this, get this, friends, and imagine if you, if you were bold enough, you would probably say something very similar. Jesus, if this is true, I think it's just better that we don't get married at all. And if you read the text, you'll see that Jesus doesn't agree with them. He doesn't say that they're right, because going all the way back to creation, Jesus teaches that marriage is good. He simply says to them that not everyone is able to receive this teaching. Jesus, if this is true, who would get married? And he goes, I know. It's hard. Not everyone can receive this teaching. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how some people are called to singleness in this life. You see, he keeps his foot on the pedal. And so listen, Jesus lifts up marriage as a tremendous good worth guarding and fighting for and simultaneously shows us that God, with grief, allows, doesn't command, divorce in certain instances. And in the tension created in the midst of this teaching, just like the Pharisees and the disciples of Jesus, our imaginations and questions rise in that kind of resistance, right? There are marriages where one spouse is abusing the other. Marriages where one spouse is utterly abandoned by another. Far more frequently, there are marriages where for a decade, a couple have been sleeping in separate beds and not having sex and not dating each other, and they've largely drifted apart while they raise their kids through puberty. And then the kids leave the house, and they look at each other, and they realize that they don't know each other anymore. They can hardly remember a time when they had feelings for each other, and they don't even know what to say or to ask. These are real and really complex circumstances. As college students, many of you are looking at your parents. I know this. And, and, and right now, that, that uh, some of them, you know about looking at them, are on their way to divorce. And perhaps you think it would be better. Perhaps you're right. 
In some cases, divorce is better than the shambles of a marriage that some of us have. But I want to pause just for a moment and consider something. If, Lord Jesus, help our imaginations. If, if your parents confessed their sin, if they renewed their covenant vows to each other, if they loved each other for better or worse, if they forsook all others for the sake of their spouse, if they daily leaned in to outdo one another in honor, if they changed, that's what repentance means, if they changed, if compassion and kindness replaced contempt and abuse, that would be better than divorce. But if that won't happen, we'd rather divorce. And if their hearts are hardened, it seems God does allow for divorce to happen at times. But let's just not call it good. It may be better than one horrible alternative that currently exists, but it still sucks. Even if it's necessary, it's grievous and it's painful and it reveals a history of wounds which have not been reconciled. And look, just on the other side of this, as I know we're starved for some good examples of this, and I'll, I'll say more in a minute as we round this out, but to those who've been married for a while, and who've been through war and who love each other and fight for each other and with each other, Jesus' teaching on marriage stands as like a sentinel outside their home guarding their marriage. Like my wife and I, when we read about Jesus' teaching on marriage, I know this is true for Kirsten too, and she reads this with her and her marriage to Jonathan. Like my wife and I feel strengthened in our marriage by Jesus' teaching, as do many in the church. But for those, uh, for those whom the fires have grown so cold that they cannot find any embers, for those on the other side of divorce who are alone again or who've been through multiple marriages. In God's kingdom, there's still hope. Jesus kicks off this whole sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I've met few people in my life more poor in spirit than those who have just gone through divorce. The kingdom is for them. Jesus does not consider a divorcee a second-class citizen. If anything, it is only because, if he allows anything, it is only because there is on the other side this possibility for redemption and new life in God's kingdom. If anything is true about the kingdom of God, it's that there's always forgiveness and new life offered, friends. And so, friends, in the kingdom of God, marriage is lifted higher than you can imagine. And in the kingdom of God, there is hope for everyone, including those whose marriages are in shambles or who are on the other side of divorce. He who has ears and she who has ears, let them hear. I want to end before we move to a time of Q&A with some brief bursts of wisdom regarding marriage we have in the past. Uh, you can find this like on our podcast, for example, from Tuesday nights. We've talked about marriage a number of times, but usually, um, like most recently, we talked through the Song of Songs. Um, we've talked about it a number of times, but it's usually talked in really high uh, romantic ways uh, because if you don't know this, marriages are designed to be God's metaphor for his love with the church. Um, and so th there's this way that our marriages play out in our daily lives, something that's happening on the cosmic scale between Jesus Christ and the church. We usually talk about it that way. And though like I and Kirsten and our other staff members get in tons of conversations about marriage and romance with people in one-on-one -on -one settings, it's not often that we just kind of shoot from the hip about uh, sort of marriage advice and dating advice in this kind of context. So I want to just end our time together before we go into Q&A with uh, just some bursts of wisdom about marriage and stuff. So I want to say a couple things. Kirsten's going to post these in the chat. First, this. This is 10 just random thoughts for you. Here you go. Uh, it's going to be quick. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of second chances. 
Um, one implication of that is uh, somebody who's been divorced or been through failed relationships or has just completely like been through train wrecks of relationships, if they have confessed and repented, if they've changed, if they're following Jesus, there is no reason they should not sit at the head of tables. Number two, two unhealthy people make an unhealthy couple. This is not multiplication. Like a negative times a negative is a positive. You know what I mean? Like, and many of us have this attitude, like I'm unhealthy, they're unhealthy, but maybe if we get together, it'll be like healthy. Nope. Two unhealthy people make an unhealthy couple. Three, gosh, I want to say so much more, but we're going to cruise. Okay, we got questions coming up, right? Three, marriage is not a cure for loneliness. In the words of Dan Allender, if you're lonely, get a dog. Marriage will not cure loneliness. If you have questions about that, save it for the Q&A. Number four, marriage is meant for the world as much as it's meant for the couple. Okay, implications to this. I'll say a little more here because Kirsten uh, and I were talking about this quite a bit today. Um, marriage is not something designed by God so that two people can just kind of like kick out their family and their friends and then just like, like a dyad, focus on each other and move around each other and they don't need anything else in the world. And there's some movies out there that play this up like it's romance. Like screw everybody else. It's just us against the world kind of thing. Friends, God intends marriage, your marriage to be on display and to, to bless your cities and your communities. If you go back to Deuteronomy 24, and it's got some weird things going on for our context today. But God actually, one of the biggest reasons that God has a certain command through Moses about divorce is because the way the land will be impacted in verse four. It's mysterious. I don't, I don't have, I don't, if you want to talk about it, I'd love to geek out and we can read some commentaries together. But the point is this, if you're interested in marriage, maybe one of the things you should consider is how this person dating or marrying you is going to impact your friends and your family and your city and your place of work and your church. And like, so for my wife marrying me, how does that bless or harm my friends and my church and the work that God has called me to in this world and my family? Marriage is not just, you're not like right now in a whole, I gotta, I gotta cruise. Um, you're not right now in a holding pattern with your friends and everything else until you get married, then you can leave all that behind, okay? Marriage is meant for the world as much as it's meant for the couple. Number five, marry someone for who they are and who they're going to be, not for who they could be. Marry someone for who they are and who they're going to be, not for who they could be. So here's what, here's what that looks like. Pay attention to who somebody actually is right now, not who they could be, and what direction they're actually moving in right now, emotionally, financially, with their time. What do they do with their free time? Do they sit around and just look at the internet all day? Do they play video games all day? Do they, do they just spend all their money on frivolous stuff? Do they, um, how do they treat their families? Are they, are they becoming more mature? Are they becoming more wise? Are they becoming more responsible? Not, not could they, everybody could, everybody could. But marry somebody for who they actually are and, and pay attention to the direction that they are, that their life is going in. Who are they already becoming? And am I excited about that trajectory and to be a part of that journey with them? Marry somebody for who they are and who they are going to be, not who they could be. Number six, this one's volatile. It's on purpose. You always marry the wrong person. Here's what I mean. This is actually a direct quote from Tim Keller. Oh, I got some giveaways. It's related to this. Um, uh, you always marry the wrong person. Okay, here's the deal. Um, 
Tim Keller, who wrote a fantastic book on marriage, uh, we'll give a copy away here in a little bit to somebody on this call. Um, he has a chapter in that book called um, Marrying a Stranger. And the idea is this, that like every single person that you marry is gonna have a lot of stuff that's still being worked out in their life. And you will find out, hopefully before you're married, that this person isn't like the best match for you because their personality is just an awesome kind of compatibility. And you guys like going on the same hikes, on the same trails, on the same days of the week. Because the trick is, as you journey through life, are you the same person you were five years ago? Like if you're 20 right now, like are you the same person as you were when you were 15? Do you like all the same things? Do you do all the same things? And if, you, if somebody marries you today for who you are today, who you are going to be in five years is going to shift and change. And so there's this sense in which every single person you marry is going to be revealed as somebody who has a lot of sin to be worked out, and they're going to shift and change, and so are you, friend. And so Tim Keller stresses this point home, and I do want to, to suggest it to you because there's a sense in which uh, we spin our wheels trying to look for the right person, and a lot of that, we do that because we have a wrong idea about what's going to make a good marriage. Anyway, you can ask questions about that. If you have questions in a Q&A, four more. Four, get some examples of good marriages in your life right away. Friends, you need it. You need people on your horizon that actually like their spouses and not just because they think their spouse is hot and not just because they just got married recently and not just because they just got a brand new job and they're like flush with the new finances. Like, like you need some examples of people who have been through a bit of a journey and have come out the other side and they know each other and they love each other dearly and they exemplify the love of Christ for each other and there are tons of them, tons of them. They're usually not posting about their spouses on Instagram or TikTok. Maybe you can find them there. They're all over in the church. And if you want to get connected to some, talk to me and Kirsten. We'd love to connect you with some. And we'd love to serve as those examples for you too because we really like our spouses. Number seven, number eight. Your marriage should happen in a larger community. That's related to the other one. I only want to, I guess I'll just say this. You need friends even in romance and in marriage. And if you have a habit of getting into romances and then ditching all of your friends, that is going to make for an unhealthy marriage. And if you, if you doubt me, then for many of you, all you've got to do is look at your parents. I don't want to throw your parents under the bus. I just know many of us have parents who have no friends and it's not very exciting to look at. And it would be so good if our parents had friends who were, who were uplifting them and encouraging them and fighting for their dignity and their goodness. Two more. Number nine, marriage isn't forever. Uh, again, you can ask questions, but the, the, the traditional marriage vows and the Christian view of marriage is that we are married until death, and then it's done. And if, that, if you don't like the sound of that, um, I guess I can dig into this a little bit more, but uh, you know, what would happen if I died next week? It's not like the best exercise. It's not like the most fun exercise to play out. But if I died next week, if my wife vowed to marry me forever, First of all, she can't control that because she doesn't have stewardship over what happens after she dies. But this is logically, it doesn't even make sense. But, but second of all, that's going to be a really tough thing for her to hold to. That means if I die next week, she's not allowed to marry anybody else or get into another romance. We vow to be married until death. It's a temporary gig. It's a long one because it's until we both die, until one of us dies. But it's a temporary gig and it's built for the purpose of our discipleship to Jesus Christ. Last one. Be the kind of person that it's good for another person to marry. Would it be good for somebody to have more of your emotions, more of your anxiety, more of your money, more of your, like the way you spend money, more of how you spend your time, more of your thought patterns and processes 
Would it be good for more of their life to be meshed with more of your life? That'd be good for them. Look, friends, we've all got growing edges. We never marry somebody who's all together. It's always a journey. I know it's always a journey. Um, and I, I don't, I don't want to set up like an impossibility there. But I, I really think that's what it looks like to honor a spouse is to be at work becoming more Christ-like for them. Because when my wife started dating me, all of the dynamics of my life, we began to sort of like a Venn diagram, have dynamics of each other's lives overlap. And is that better for her? So anyway, the, the invitation in this last one is be the kind of person that it would be good for another person to marry. 